All right, we are now live. Hello, everybody. I hope everybody's having a good day today. We are now streaming live to the internet. I think we're being piped into Facebook and YouTube and Sermon Audio, but I think most of our viewers are listening on Facebook today. All right, so welcome to the Pristine Grace Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Kraft, and today is Thursday, January 9th, 2020. 2020. And uh, I am so thankful today. Uh, I'm so thankful that I have so many friends in the gospel. At, at times, you know, it can seem like you're all alone in this world. We're, we're not always surrounded by other friends that uh, believe the same gospel as us. And uh, usually we're surrounded by folks who don't share our, pres our precious faith, our like precious faith. And, uh, you know, when we get out there and we get to work and we get out there in the world and we're not around our families or around our church. But, uh, you know, the uh, Internet certainly has opened up our world. And today, through the use of the Internet, I have connected with so many of like and precious faith. So many of you out there, and uh, I do appreciate you. And uh, I know there are a lot of listeners today that don't share a lot of fellowship with other believers. They're what you will call sheep without a home. But uh, I, I don't want you, to, please don't feel that way. You know, all sheep have a home, and uh, you may not be able to physically meet with folks, but there are opportunities online. And through the use of the phone and internet messaging, you can be connected with one another. So please be encouraged and please don't give up hope. There are people to connect with, to pray with, and to worship the Lord uh, together with. So uh, even if you never meet face to face. And we also have a lot of pastors online that uh, that are available. And, you know, we have a lot of gifted preachers of the gospel, you know, people that the Lord has raised up. We have wonderful pastors as well in the churches that I associate with. And some of them may even be out there listening right now, or they listen to this message. I know they're pretty busy. And then I also know there's some that aspire to be a pastor, and uh, I I don't know, I just kind of thought I'd bring this up tonight. I believe that all of us, all believers, are to be servants of Christ. We're all to be ministers in the gospel. We're all to be servants. And we're also all priests in the body of Christ. But not everybody is gifted, be, gifted enough to be a pastor. You know, pastors need to be qualified. They need to be able. And they... They should also be gentle, and uh, if you're not gentle, I don't think you're qualified. And uh, you may be a good steward of the truth, a fine teacher or preacher. You may be able to correct error, but if you're not gentle, you're not qualified to be a pastor, in my opinion. And uh, I don't know why I brought that up. I thought I'd just bring that up. And you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to increase the brightness on my monitor so that you can see me better. So one second. I don't have a light in here. But, uh, here, how's that? 
that's the brightness for my monitor. It really brightens things up. All right. Okay. So I also want to thank everybody uh, who donated this week to the uh, the uh, goal that we had for the the uh, brethren in the churches down there in Malawi and Zambia. I'm really excited about that, and uh, I know that James Mwali down there and Christopher Chongwe, I guess that's how you pronounce your last name there, Chris. I know he in Zambia, there in Zambia, I know that family really appreciates that, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, the gospel message preached down there, even in a, in a greater way. And uh, I think that's about all I got for announcements tonight and the introduction, so I'm going to go ahead and get straight to the message now. All right, so these past four messages that I've given... Uh, They've been related to doctrines that either adherence to or denial of will enable others to readily label you as a hyper-Calvinist. Okay? And as I've said many times before, this label, hyper-Calvinism, is really just a made-up word. It's a word designed to scare folks away from what you're preaching, and that is free and sovereign grace in Christ. In fact, I'd say that the word hyper-Calvinist is just what many people might call a pejorative. Okay, And so, when you look up the word pejorative in the dictionary, its definition is as follows. It's a noun, and it's a disparaging or belittling word or expression. Okay, tending to, or intended to depreciate or deteriorate as the sense of a word giving a low or bad sense to, okay? So, I ask you please, if you ever hear the word hyper-Calvinism or hyper-Calvinist, don't be afraid of it, okay? There's so many made-up stories about mean old hypers out there, you know? And uh, before I heard and understood, understood the truth of free and sovereign grace, I had a pastor of mine tell me there are groups of people called hyper-Calvinists that are opposed to preaching the gospel. And I thought to myself, oh, how horrible. But looking back on that conversation, I now know that he was just perpetuating a lie. So-called hyper-Calvinists are not opposed to preaching the gospel. In fact, I would venture to say that those who aren't labeled as hyper-Calvinists are probably opposed to preaching the gospel, okay? They preach an offer along with obligation to accept that offer. And that's something that's uh, foreign to Scripture. It's the so-called mean old hyper-Calvinists that are actually out there preaching the truth of Scripture. They're the ones that are preaching the gospel. <laughs> All right? But what's funny about this word, this, this word hyper-Calvinism, it means different things to different people. The average free willer will call anyone who goes beyond the doctrine of once saved, always saved, a hyper-Calvinist. In fact, you'll hear Pentecostals call uh, Arminian Southern Baptists that sometimes. Uh, and the typical low-grace Calvinist will call anyone who believes in double predestination a hyper-Calvinist. And I've even heard free-grace preachers call primitive Baptists hyper-Calvinists. You know, the word has different meaning depending on who you talk to. So I pretty much dismiss that word when I hear it, because you never know what they're talking about. 
her. So, you know, but I also find it funny that, uh, about that word, what I find funny about it is that I've been called a hyper-Calvinist from all sorts of people, even people who deny the free or well-meant offer and common grace. I was once called a hyper-Calvinist by one of the, the, the meanest hyper-Calvinists that ever was, Mark Carpenter. You know, I find it funny that he called me that because so many people would call him one. But the reason he called me a hyper-Calvinist is interesting, and that's what I want to talk about in today's message. And it involves, I guess you could, you could say it involves the doctrine of justification from eternity, but I'm not going to get into that so much. I'm just going to go straight for the, uh, the wrath of God, specifically the wrath of God, and whether or not it has ever really rested upon the elect, upon God's chosen people. All right. And essentially, Mark Carpenter and others out there taught and believed that the wrath of God abides on everyone who does not believe the gospel. Okay. And I challenged him on this doctrine of what I deem common wrath. So it's like the corollary of common grace. And in turn, he called me a hyper-Calvinist, okay? And, uh, I, I again, I find that accusation rather amusing. So let's go ahead and get right into it. And I've titled this message, Is the Wrath of God Common? Alright? So around 2005, I think, it was uh, Mark Carpenter and his now defunct website, Outside the Camp. He was out there labeling all kinds of people as hypo-Calvinists, as opposed to hyper, and writing articles about them and placing them in his heterodoxy hall of shame section on his website. Even folks like Bill Parker and maybe Richard Warmack made the list. I can't, I, I think John Calvin even made the list, so it was, it was kind of ridiculous. He, <laughs> yeah, I think he called uh, John Calvin a hypo-Calvinist, which is just, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I can't remember what Bill made the list for. Maybe it's because uh, Mark determined that he hadn't properly repented of his free willism or something to that effect. I don't know. Anyway, some of it, some of what he had on his website was pretty good, but about a lot of it was just over-the-top drivel posted by Mark. And in many ways, it was like a soap opera. In my opinion, the website was not edifying. In fact, I think it caused more harm than anything out there. But one day, he called me out on his website, and I think this might have been after he came to my, came to the forum to talk to me, and he's got some, uh, he's got some discussions out there. He posted under the uh, username Romans9 before I uh, banned him from the site and told him never to return, because he was just, he was too vitriolic and just, you know, just not a very nice fellow online. And, uh, anyway, he called me out on his website, somehow made his infamous wall of shame. I don't remember what for. It, I, th but it led to a discussion, and I discovered through the correspondence that we had that we really believed in something very different. We had a totally different understanding of God. Etern eternity, the eternity of God, the wrath of God, and the love that God has for his elect people. And, and later, I found that these differences between me and Mark 
are similar to the differences that I have with so many other so-called sovereign grace teachers. Those that deny the doctrine of justification from eternity, I believe, are prone to this error that I'm talking about. In fact, I would say that a denial of justification from eternity is a serious error because it's symptomatic of a misunderstanding of one of God's attributes, his eternity. And when you misunderstand God's attributes, it's going to affect all of your theology. Okay? I don't necessarily I don't necessarily believe that this error will evidence that you are not a believer. But if you don't believe and love the doctrine of justification from eternity, it can hamper or hurt your preaching of the gospel. In fact, I would say it's it's symptomatic of being wrong on the eternity of God and the immutability of God, amongst other things. It's also symptomatic of the wrath, uh, a misunderstanding of the wrath of God as well. But uh, anyway, Mr. Carpenter did in fact call justification from eternity a false doctrine. In fact, he called it heresy, a damnable heresy. He called me a heretic, and then he called me a hyper-Calvinist. <laughs> and uh, this understanding of God drove much of his theology in very much the same way that the Westboro Baptists are driven. Mark, along with the Westboro Baptists, believed that God's wrath abides on all those who do not believe that God actually hates everybody, including the elect, because of their sin against him. He believed that in 2005, and maybe he still does, that God's love for the elect doesn't begin in time until they come to believe the gospel and righteousness is imputed to them. And imputed to them. And I know this because I actually said, I actually asked him, and he, he affirmed all that, that. And he believes that God actually hates the elect before they're converted to the truth. And so you really have to ask yourself, how is this different from free willism? Sounds to me like the theology is very similar. The conversion theology is very similar. Mark Carpenter, the slayer of free willers, was really just one of them. He viewed salvation primarily in conversion and not in Christ. Okay, And let that sink in for a minute. If you believe that righteousness being imputed is dependent upon conversion or you believe that righteousness is not imputed until you are converted, then maybe you need to reconsider your theology. All right? Maybe you need to reconsider who God is. Maybe you need to study the doctrine of eternity and the doctrine of immutability, the idea that God does not change. His affections do not change. Okay? He is steadfast. Okay, he is eternal, and everything proceeds from him, including time itself. This is the doctrine of God. Okay, God does not react, he doesn't react to the things that happen in time, nor does he react logically in his decrees. 
his decrees are logically ordered, ordered in such a way as to bring about his ultimate purpose, himself being glorified. Okay? And if you're a believer, this comes as great comfort to you. Okay? Whether great or small, evil or good, all things in your life have been perfectly planned to happen exactly as they have occurred, even to the smallest detail, whether you perceive it to be good or bad. And not only does this include the timing of everything, but all the events leading up to it as well. And these things, these are not the, the things of a blind, a blind despot, okay? but rather the immutable providence of an almighty sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. So, it rather comes as a surprise to me to think I'm even having this argument with supposed sovereign grace believers, those who would be labeled as hyper-Calvinists themselves. If God has purposed all the events of our lives, those of us in Christ in order to achieve his ultimate desire, glorification via redemption of an elect people in his Son, I find it rather strange to think that God himself hates us, okay? Or that this wrath that he has abides on us at any point in our lives, okay? So to the answer to the question, is the wrath of God common my answer is unequivocally, absolutely, and emphatically, no. Okay, that's, that's no with a capital N, no. Okay? <laughs> but if you take such a stance that, yes, the wrath of God is common, I mean, I'm sorry, if you take such a stance that the wrath of God is not common, you're going to draw the charge of hyper-Calvinism, and you will heap scorn upon yourself, People will say that you never believe the elect are lost, that there is no salvation in your gospel. People will go after you for not preaching hell. People will go after you for not preaching law. And I might get into those topics in another message. But the truth is, God's people were never destined for hell. Nor was there any danger of them falling into hell. God's people were destined for salvation. In fact, they were already saved in eternity in the immutable counsel of God, in the covenant of redemption when Christ was made their surety. It's as good as done. They're saved in Christ, okay, in the mind and perspective of God. But they were also saved in time in the work of redemption performed for them in Christ's earthly work and ministry. You know, even to the point of his sacrifice for them on, on the cross. So do you, ask yourself this question. Do you really believe, do you really think that Christ saw his people as headed for hell? Do you think Christ's wrath abided on his people when he was hanging for them, hanging for them on the cross? That was not an, that was not an act of anger. That was an act of love. Okay, that was not a, that was not a, a hatred and hateful thing that Christ did, and I, I, if anybody says it was, I don't even want to talk to them anymore. And you know, the, but the the common wrath folks they discombobulate themselves. 
they work themselves up into a frenzied rhetoric and expose the paradox in their thinking. You know, when you, when you talk to them, they expose it to, to you. And they will admit that Christ's death on the cross was indeed an act of love. But then God remains angry after that supposed work of love, sometimes to the point of hatred, depending on who you talk to. With Mark Carpenter, in his case, it was, yeah, hatred. Okay? And, and, and this hatred then abides on these people until that these people that Christ died for until they're converted. Alright? Whatever that means. Well, I'm sorry, that's just wrong think. Okay? It, it hurts my brain to try to think of things that way. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they've twisted the scriptures and developed contradicting doctrines that rest in their mind in uh, opposite compartments, I guess. You know, they have bits and pieces of doctrine and it's just a a jumbled mess in their brain. And when you try to reason with them, it's impossible because they don't understand what they believe themselves. They just vomit out their arguments, you know, without even hearing or really thinking about what it is they are saying. All right. And, uh, you know, so what are some of these scriptures that they, they like to bring up proving their paradox? Well, I'm really only going to focus on one of them tonight, and this is the one they, they always bring up. I mean, it's to the common rather, this verse is like John 3.16 to the free willer, all right? Okay, and that's the children of wrath passage from the book of Ephesians. So if you don't mind, I'd like just to read this passage with you and then give you my thoughts on it, okay? So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And you're not really turning with me because I'm already there with my digital, uh, my digital scriptures here. Alright, we, we can just hope I uh, copied and pasted it properly. <laughs> Alright, Ephesians chapter 2. And, and we're going to start here in verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Verse 3, and we were, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. That's their proof text. This is what they say to me. See, Brandon, you're the heretic. This, this verse proves that God was angry with us before our conversion. This proves that God's wrath abided on us before our conversion. We were the children of wrath. That settles it. We're right. You're wrong. God hates all who don't believe. You're the hyper-Calvinist meanie butt. What a heretic you are. Blah, 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 blah. All right. <laughs> okay, whatever. You, you think you've proven your point. But, you know, you think this gives you permission now to go out and yell, God hates fags all over the place. To stand on street corners and cost passers-by with a vitriolic rhetoric. 
You think this gives you the moral high ground, that God only loves you and other believers, but hates everyone else, even the very elect that Christ died for. But this, this only proves you don't even know what you're talking about. This only proves you don't understand the truth. This only proves you haven't gone to the school of grace. Read the very next verse with me, the, very, the next two verses with me in Ephesians. Okay, Ephesians 2. We're going to start here in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. We're going to repeat that. For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Boom. You just lost the argument. You common rathers. <laughs> you lost the argument with your own argument. And it's because you stopped reading when you read Children of Wrath. You read into it what you wanted to read, and then you stopped reading. You probably haven't even sat down and read through the book of Ephesians. You just have a bunch of jumbled proof texts resting in your mind. Proof texts that you use to pound others over the head with. You know, I sometimes wonder why we even have to have these debates. The answers are so simple, and they're so, they're so clearly evident in God's Word. The answers are there waiting to be read, and they are easily understood. If you've been given eyes to see, if, you've, if God, has, God has regenerated your mind, the Gospel really is quite a simple message. Okay, And it's so simple that even a young child can understand it. Yet people stumble twist, misread, scream, and shout, and the plain meaning of the scriptures are ignored. It's because they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. You know, go back and read that passage. You know, so if God, if it says there in verse 4, he loved us while we were children of wrath, doesn't mean he loved us while he hated us. Okay? This is, this is elementary. It has to mean something else. Okay? You know, you could, you could say that we were, you, you, there are different ways to interpret that. You could interpret it as saying, you know, we were, we were angry, okay, we were children of wrath. Or we were like those who are children of wrath, that those God has set his wrath upon, okay? But it says there that he loved us, okay? So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go down the paradox theology road with you, Okay? The gospel, in reality, makes perfect sense to me. It's not a blind faith. Our faith is based on what God has revealed to our minds, okay? It makes perfect sense to us. We rejoice because we know it's true, okay? We have assurance that it is true. And simple truths like these, like the fact that God loved us, Therefore, he saved us and regenerated us and converted us are rejected. But ask yourself, what is the message of the Westboro Baptists and people like Mark Carpenter? You know, for even amongst some of those who associate with free grace believers, you know, there are even some amongst us that, that teach that uh, they deny justification for eternity and promote common wrath, Okay. Even in the free grace circles, and I'm not going to name names. But when you try to piece together their theology, this is the story that they tell. They say, 
hmm, God loved the elect, God died, Christ died for the elect, but then when the elect person is born, he hates that person, he's angry with the elect, but then when that person gets converted through duty faith preaching, God then loves that person, okay? Now, what a bunch of malarkey. Don't fall for it, folks. Don't fall for their so-called gospel. It tells me that they don't know the gospel, and they only use gospel language to advance their weird agenda of self-righteous judging, all right? But we don't need to do this. We, we don't need to stand on a corner and scream judgment on this world. We don't need to protest military funerals. We don't need to scream God hates people or God hates fags. That, you know, that, it's sick, all right? It's just a weird form of evangelism, you know, trying to scare people into the kingdom. It's duty faith on steroids, all right? And if you don't know what duty faith is, go, go back a few messages in the series, and I talk about it in depth. The free willers do the same thing with their weird haunted houses of horror that they have around Halloween, you know, trying to scare people into confession. Free willers and common wrath, I'm going to call them sovereign gravers, are really cut from the same cloth, okay? They see salvation primarily in conversion. They see salvation as salvation from hell and God's wrath and not from sin, as Matthew 121 says. Thankfully, we, we had the, the truth of a special love, a, a particular love, an everlasting love, one that does not have change or variance. God's love for us is perfect. And that's because it is in Christ, in whom the elect have always been and have been seen. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And this verse will calm my nerves every time I read it. This soothes my soul. This tells me that the common wrath folks are just fear-mongering. God has loved me with an everlasting love. It's not a willy-nilly love. It's not a fickle love. It's not one that starts, stops, and then starts again, as the common wrathers, the common, uh, the sovereign gravers would have us believe. No, it's, it's everlasting. Okay? And this, this makes me want to shout for joy. Okay? This is the, this is the security I need, all right? And if you're listening to this and you, you believe the truth, that this is the security you need as well. God's love for me isn't dependent upon my conversion. It's not based on an exercise of obligation. It's based on God himself. And you can't get any more sure than that. And uh, I love going to John Gill, and I found another quote from John Gill. I'm going to read it to you. God's love to his elect is not of yesterday. It does not begin with their love to him. We love him because he first loved us. It was bore in his heart toward them long before they were delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. 
It does not commence in time, but bears date from eternity, and is the ground and foundation of the elect's being called in time out of darkness into marvelous light. I have loved thee, says the Lord to the church, with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That is an effectual vocation. Many are the instances which might be given in proof of the antiquity of God's love to his elect, and as it is antecedent to their being brought out of a state of nature. God's choosing them in Christ before the foundation of the world was an act of his love towards them, the fruit and effect of it. For election presupposes love. His making an everlasting covenant with his Son, ordered in all things, and sure on account of those he chose in him, his setting him up as the mediator of the covenant from everlasting, his donation of grace to them and him before the world began, his putting their persons into his hands, and so making them his care and charge, are so many demonstrative proofs of his early love to them. For, for can it ever be imagined that there should be a choice of a person's made a covenant of grace so well formed and stored, a promise of life granted and a security made, both of persons and grace, and yet no love all this while? Good question. And I, I think, I thanks be to God for causing our brother Gil to write this so many years ago. Why is it you don't hear this in much preaching today? Why is this such an unpopular message? Why is this scorned as terrible hyper-Calvinism? Quite simply, it has been God's pleasure not to reveal it to a dying and unbelieving church world. He has been content, however, to re reveal it to his elect. He's been content to reveal it to us. Okay, And if you're a believer, he's been content to reveal it to you. His remnant, according to the election of grace. And if you're one of his people, rejoice in the fact that you weren't made for destruction. You weren't made to go to hell. God's wrath has never abided on you. Your title is free and clear. His love for you is everlasting. And uh, I think that's all i got about to say about common wrath, so-called common wrath. Denying it is not hyper-Calvinism. It's the truth. <laughs> to hold the common wrath is anti-gospel, in my opinion. It's really just it's duty faith. That It's a denial of God's immutability. It's a denial of God's eternity. It's a denial of God's love. It's a denial of God. It's a bad road to go down. So thank you for listening. I hope you can join me uh, next week as we continue this hyper-Calvinism series. Uh, there are a few more topics I think I want to get into before I move on to something else. So that's about all I got for tonight. Uh, gospel blessings to you. I, I, I plan on speaking next uh, Thursday, January 16th at 6.30 p.m. So uh, until then, grace and peace unto you. Good night.